in. And, um, and then just yesterday, we uh, had Giving Christmas, uh, which was a great opportunity to just love on our community. Uh, we had more upward basketball. I hear Blake tells me that upward basketball is bigger than ever before this coming year. So God is giving us just bringing the mission field to us and, and, and expecting us to share the gospel. And so we want to be faithful to do that. Amen. And so uh, God bless you for doing that. Well, let's uh, continue on today with, uh, we're going to light our, our third candle, the candle of humanity. Let's sing this great Christmas carol, uh, Angels from the Realms of Glory.
sing our, our next song, a young man will be coming up named Brady McAllister. He's down here on the, the front row. For years, I got to serve as your student pastor here, and I would not have given Braden a lighter. <laughs> I remember many mission trips. I might have sent him home. No, I'm just kidding. But just a couple of years ago, God, God got a hold of him. And uh, God is doing a remarkable thing in Braden's life. Uh, he got to serve this last summer in Niger and will be serving this next summer in uh, uh, Central Asia. Uh, through a program through Midwestern called Fusion, which is funded by the International Mission Board. And uh, it's important for me to say that because, in, as you know, in December, we collect money, a uh, Lighting Moon Christmas offering. And part of that goes to help students like Braden. Um, figure out what is God calling him to do in life. And uh, if you want to see transformation, if I was a betting man, I would have lost. But God is doing a great thing through him. And I am I'm so excited to see how God is working through him and other young people in our church to uh, call them to do God's work. And uh, he may be calling you today. And here's the deal. We need to help fund the people that God is putting in on our mission field. We have... Um, ready to go, we have opportunities to send 500 new missionaries to the field, but people aren't answering the call. So maybe today in this room, God is calling you to the mission field. And today, instead of saying, not me, Lord, somebody else, surrender and say, here am I, send me. And so, Lord, I just want to say thank you for, for, for Bredo and Okay, I'm not supposed to say Bredo, but I call him Bredo. And, uh, but he's going to come and share in just a moment the, the next um, Advent um, lighting of the candle. And so I just want to say thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in Bredo's life, but what he's doing in other people's life around the world. So help support the International Mission Board and Lighty Moon. So before Bredo comes, we're going to uh, sing a song. It's a Christmas song, but it's really a mission song. Go Tell it, tell it, tell it. Mission, amen? And so, uh, and by the way, this, if you were to go visit your grandma in the hills of Kentucky, this is sort of what it may sound like. 
share with us, please. Uh, all right, first, I want to thank Blake for the introduction. That was really sweet. And then just thank all of you for letting me come up here and uh, share a little bit about Niger and talk and then do the Advent. But first, I'll be really brief on some of the things that we got to experience in Niger and what that was like. There was a, we had a team of three other guys with me, and then we had a team of six girls that went with us. And originally, we were supposed to go to Madagascar, and we were working with some of the missionaries that were in America, and then we were going to go over there with them whenever they went, but COVID shut all that down, so we ended up in the last month having to switch to Niger, and so it was, a, it was a mess for a little bit, especially with the language and everything. But once we got there, we were based in the capital city of Nime. We weren't actually allowed to leave the capital because the villages were struggling with some of the terrorism that was coming in from a bunch of different countries that were surrounding Niger. And so we stayed there. It's, Niger itself is a Muslim country, 99, 98% Muslim. It's very slow, and that's one of the, the hard parts about it, is that 
you talk to a lot of people and you just don't see a lot of fruit, but we can be very thankful that God uh, gave us endurance and we were able to continue through that, push through the, the struggles of that plus team life and hold us together. Some of the ministry opportunities we got to do were English clubs, which they have a little college in the capital and they'll do these English clubs where you just get to go and you kind of speak and of course they want English speakers there to hear our accents and help us with that and so that's an opportunity to make a lot of friends. And then we'd also do mapping, which was just getting a picture of the city, trying to figure out where the mosques were, if there were any churches or anything like that. That was a big deal because because of the terrorism in the villages, a lot of people were moving to the city and the city was growing extremely fast. And then another cool opportunity is that a couple of the guys got to go down a river a little bit to a village that was just barely inside the capital uh, borders. And so they got to share the gospel with a couple of people down there, and that was really awesome. And so I just ask that you guys please be praying for the missionaries, that they would have endurance in that place, that they would be able to endure through the, the hardships of what's going on in the villages, plus just the hardship of sharing the gospel with a very lost nation. And then I would ask that you pray for the people there, that they would hear the gospel and repent and believe, and that the church would grow there. All right, so now moving on to the Advent. I know last week did the candle of deity, and then so this week will be the candle of humanity. This candle reminds us of the incarnation, God coming to us, robed in human flesh, fully God and fully man, to be our Savior, our Messiah. He did not become the Son of God when he came to earth. He, was, he has always been the Son of God. However, his virgin birth was a supernatural pathway God chose to bring the Son of God into our time and space to live a perfect life, take the penalty for our sins on the cross, come back to life on the third day, and ascend to the eternal Father in heaven, where Christ Jesus is now seated, making intercession for us. Where Christ Jesus is now seated, making intercession for us. This is a gospel story that began in Bethlehem. So we're in Galatians 4, 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And then Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself like, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So let's pray. Lord, I just ask that you prepare our lives to receive your beloved son. Please humble us. Please help us to look to him and remember how he took on flesh. Remember how he bore our sins on the cross and he suffered and was tempted in the same ways that we do. Please help us to look to him and to give our lives to him. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for all you've done. In your name we pray. Amen. Blake was kind of hard on you, wasn't he, Braden? Yeah. And I, I was just blessed to see that you got friends, right? <laughs> you brought with you, no, seriously, I think back, I don't know how long ago that was, Fredo, that we talked about the call of God upon your life, and we visited about fusion. I don't think you had heard of it at all at that point. And uh, 
I can't stress enough uh, how I feel about our seminary here, although I haven't been able to go there yet. Uh, but I went to two more of the SBC Southern uh, seminaries, but I'm thankful for what God is doing at Midwestern. It is the fastest growing seminary in the U.S. That's impressive right here in our state. And so uh, let's just pray that God will begin to raise up uh, men and women uh, to fulfill the call of God. And, and of course, we emphasize Lottie Moon because it's vitally important. I thought about it on the way to church. We have way more than 200 families in our church. And so I and my wife will commit $200 for Lottie Moon. If you'll match me, that's $40,000. That's way over our goal of $28,000. All right? <laughs> it's a greater gift than any gift you'll put under a tree. I promise you to give in that light. Last week, we had the privilege of doing more of an exposition of Hebrews 10, 1 through 8 in regard to the deity of Christ. Remember, behold, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do thy will, O God. And Jesus, of course, is speaking intelligently. Why? Because he's the son of God before he ever condescended to this earth. Well, today the subject, of course, is the incarnation of Christ. And we need to ask our God to help us understand and to speak to our hearts regarding it. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In response to a verse like that, here's my prayer. Father, shine the spotlight on your Son. When you read that, we understand that there's absolutely no knowledge, no creating work in us apart from God the Father creating that light, shining into our hearts in the face of Jesus Christ so that we understand and have knowledge regarding who our God is. And that is so true when it comes to the Word made flesh. So, Father, please shine the spotlight this morning on your Son. F.F. F. Bruce said... If there is among the distinctive articles of the Christian faith one thing that is basic to all others, it is this. That our Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, became man for our salvation. Now think about what he's saying. He's saying the heart of the distinctiveness of the Christian faith is the fact that the eternal Son of God became man for us and for our salvation. Uh, now, uh, there have been many, many attacks on the deity of Christ. In other words, to say that Jesus wasn't God. There are cults that will not agree with that. And we call them cults because they do not line up with what the Word of God has to say. However, I want you to know that the atta attacks toward his humanity were also through time just as numerous. If we don't think about that, we usually think people will just say, well, Jesus wasn't God to deny the faith, but on the flip side of that, people often say he wasn't human either. They deny that. So the basic heretical teaching against his humanity suggested that though he was in fact God, he only appeared to be a man. You see the subtlety of that. So he had the appearance of a man, but not the reality of a human nature. Others taught that he was a deified human being, 
In other words, he was just a normal human being until either the Spirit of God came upon him at the inauguration of his ministry, or some even believe he didn't become, uh, it was only until he went to the cross or was resurrected that he became divine. Others said he was just human, humanified deity. He simply was a human that put on a jumpsuit. That would be their understanding. He was just in a shell for a while. Still others claim he was an ordinary person just like you and me, like some of the movies that have been put out on him, that he had a sin nature just like we did and like everyone else on the planet. But I have to tell you, all of those things are dead wrong. All of them. Why? Because eternal God became man. And that is surely the greatest miracle of all time. What does the Bible teach us? about the incarnation of the Son of God. Now there are many passages that teach on the incarnation, some that we just skip over and we don't think about it, such as this one. For this purpose I came into the world. For this purpose I was born to bear witness to the truth. We don't usually think about that as a Christmas text, but it is. How about this one, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for our sakes he became poor that through his poverty we might become rich. That's a Christmas text, right? Now, there's no way that I can go through all of them. And unlike last week when it was more of an exposition of a particular text, I've got to jump to about four passages today to help you to see the incarnation of Christ. So, let's look at these together. John 1.1, are you there? We don't bring our Bibles much to church anymore because we've got phones, right? And if that fails, then the preacher will probably have it put on the PowerPoint for you. Uh, but you need to be very well accustomed to your Bible, right? So, John 1.1. 1, 1. Listen to the word of the Lord. Affirming that the divine word, or logos, is God. Logos is God. Listen. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And hear this, and the Word was God. Now let your eyes fall down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father. Now folks, there's no doubt that this is describing God in his full essence. Word made flesh. And when you see that, you think, how, in, how do we explain Jesus being called the Word? Or God, the rationale of God, the full essence of Him. And that's a lot to wrap your mind around. And one pastor theologian describes it like this. Suppose I say to you, I'm thinking of a Word. What's the Word? Wow. And you reply, I don't know, unless you tell me what the word is. So I say, just guess and name a few things that I might be thinking. And I, you say, reindeer, or Santa Claus, or something else. And I say, no, no, eventually you give up, and I tell you that I was thinking of the word bacteria. I mean, why not, with COVID everywhere, and viruses everywhere, right? And... Uh, you say, well, why were you thinking that word? No, no particular reason. I guess it's just in my mind, right? 
You see, if I'm thinking of a word, I've got to tell you, or you're never going to know what that is, right? Better yet, I need to say it, and I need to show it, so that you will then understand what I'm trying to communicate. Something like that is what John means when he says, the word became flesh. Jesus is God's word made flesh. Now we know what God was thinking, what he was attempting to communicate to us in this incredible, unbelievable action of the Son of God condescending to this earth to be born in human flesh. Notice what God's word says in verse 14. And the word became flesh. We all know that grammar is important, isn't it? Focus your attention on two particular verbs. In the beginning, and the, uh, look up there, and the word was God. And verse 14, what's the emphasis in the verb? The word became flesh. So, those two verbs, was and became, for us as believers, encapsulate the mystery of the Godhead becoming man. It says the word was God and the word became flesh. When John uses the word flesh, he is talking about the totality of humanity. John could have said the word became man. He could have also said the word became human. The construction he uses is that the word became flesh. Became flesh. Manifested. Tabernacled. He wants you to grasp the totality of what it means for the God of eternity to become human flesh. Now let that sink into your mind. John 1.1 1, 1 and John 1.14. Now, take your copy of scripture and flip over to Hebrews. We were not in it long enough for you to be able to thump your Bible and for it to jump open to Hebrews. But one day I'll preach through Hebrews and I promise you we'll be in there a long time. All right. Hebrews chapter 2. Last week we were in chapter 10. But just... This was one of the scripture readings that Braden read earlier for us. Hebrews 2, verse 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood. That means, the word share means that we have this universally in common. All humanity. And blood. He himself likewise partook. Not the same Greek word. This one actually means to not have something before, but to add it. Isn't that awesome? Christ never knew. The Son of God never knew what it was like to dwell in flesh or humanity. But he actually did not share in it, but he actually partook of it. Something that was not previously in his nature. The same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. So here the writer tells us that Jesus Christ partook of the same exact nature of us. Not previously having that nature. We share. He partook of that nature. We all have a common humanity. That's flesh and blood. That's what makes us human beings. The eternal Son of God came and partook of the very exact nature of us. And when Jesus of Nazareth walked around in the days of his flesh, check this out, he did not walk around as a superhuman being floating four foot off the ground. He walked around just like us with one exception. Chapter 4, if you're still in Hebrews, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Y'all see it? 
yet without sin. The biblical writer wants to communicate to us that the eternal Son of God became something. He didn't just put on something like someone puts on a coat or something. He became flesh. Christ took on our nature, one that is exactly ours, yet without sin. Romans 8, 3. Y'all are doing so good. We're just running right through these texts. Romans 8, verse 3. The book of Romans, written by Paul, chapter 8, verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness, check that out, of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Here the apostle Paul tells us that God sent his own son and notice the expression in the likeness of sinful flesh. Notice what Paul avoids saying. He is careful not to take sinful flesh and credit to Christ a sinful nature where he would in fact sin. He's careful in the likeness of human of sinful flesh. He did not become a fallen human being. He took on a nature identical to ours with one exception. Unfallen. We are all fallen, right? But not so with the Son of God. He identified with us so closely as possible, yet without sin. He was holy, he was undefiled, and the word likeness guards that particular truth. The fourth thing, 1 John 4. Now this gets a little serious for those who would deny that Christ has come in the flesh. Chapter 4 of the book of 1 John. Who wrote 1 John John the Apostle, not John the Baptist. And how many books did John write? The Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the Apocalypse. That's exactly right. All right. 1st John 4, 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into this world. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the antichrist. Wow. Which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So John is writing in the 1st century and he is addressing not, I would not say full-blown gnosis, which is the common word in the book of 1 John, but an incipient form of Gnosticism. Not full-blown yet, but what is, that, what is the major thing with Gnosticism? Complete separation between matter and spirit. Or body and spirit. So they would, of course, deny that Jesus would have come in a body because thus that would have meant he was evil. Or the, so the fundamental principle of Gnosticism is that flesh and spirit 
are incompatible because flesh is evil and spirit is good. John is safeguarding the teaching of the doctrine of the incarnation of Christ in saying this, how do you know that a person is of the Spirit of God? They will confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. If you're the Spirit of the Antichrist, then you will deny that the Lord of glory has come in the flesh. By the way, God also has a plan for your body. Aren't you thankful for that? They, they had this contrast between matter and spirit. But your salvation is a whole picture of body, soul, and spirit. Your salvation is the picture of, yes, God has redeemed your soul today. But one of these days, God's going to take that earthly body that decays in the ground. And he's going to put it back together with resurrection power and bring it forth from the dead. Amen? The Bible tells us this. So, he's strong in this regard that he says that if you don't confess this about Christ, then it shows that you are not from God and in fact the spirit of the Antichrist is working in you. So to deny the humanity of Christ is to be of the spirit of the Antichrist. You're just as much, listen, you're just as much an enemy of the gospel of Jesus Christ for rejecting his humanity as you would be for rejecting that he is God. Okay? By incarnation, then, this is what we mean. Are you ready? The eternal Son of God, the second person of the divine trinity, became a man taking upon himself a complete human nature without sin and without ceasing to be God. That's what we believe. When he adds humanity, he does not lose one iota of his eternal deity. People have falsely believed that Philippians 2, where it says that he did not consider it robbery to be equal with his father, but made himself of no reputation. People have falsely believed that, that, that he laid aside his deity. Well, I want to tell you it's more subtraction by addition, right? The humiliation is not that he lost any, not one iota of his deity. It's the fact that he added flesh and blood. He added humanity. That text, by the way, is called the kenosis text. Why? Because we, we wrestle with that word emptied. What does that mean, to empty himself? Well, I would tell you that it was the addition of his humanity, right? wasn't subtraction of deity. He added something to himself, which was humiliation for him being the Lord of glory, to add sinful flesh. So, when he became a man, he did not cease to, to be anything that he was through the endless time of eternity, right? He becomes something in time that he never was. And what was that? He became man. So the incarnation teaches us that Jesus Christ is one person with two distinct natures, divine and human. He is eternally God who became man. And when he becomes a man, he does not cease to be God. Do you all remember Charles Wesley? He celebrates this in the song called, Hark the Herald Angel Sings. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as men with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Right? Y'all remember that song? That's what he's celebrating. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. So remember... The question, why the incarnation? Why did God become man? 
Those are things that obviously the, teach, the, the scripture teaches us. But let's get this straight first. We're talking about the Son of God who existed for all eternity. That condescended from heaven and took on our flesh yet without sin to be our substitute and pay the penalty that we could have never paid. Okay? Now, let's deal with four things and we're done. I've got 15 minutes. Yippee! Right? You'll notice that I haven't given you anything in your outline, right? Here it is. Here's the first one. Let's give four reasons that the Word needed to become flesh. Okay? We see what the Scripture says, but then let's ask the question. Uh, we see how the Bible teaches us the incarnation, but now let's ask the question of why He needed to. Number one, the Word became flesh so that Christ could fulfill all covenant promises. He promised to come and dwell among his people. And I said this a few weeks ago, and I reiterated it at Ridgecrest. The story of the Bible is the Lord God of eternity looking for a place to dwell, looking for a place to live. He seeks to dwell with Adam and Eve in the garden. Yet because of their sin and rebellion, he becomes a very unwelcomed guest. God raises up Abraham and a people from him. And what is his covenant promise to them? I will be your God, and you shall be my people, and I will dwell in the midst of you. He promises by covenant that he will come and save his people, and that he will dwell with them forever. The covenant promise begins to take shape all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. If you're unfamiliar with this text, you, let me read it for you. Listen, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head... And you shall bruise his heel. We call this verse the four gleams of the gospel. Even there we see that he's going to accomplish his covenant purpose through the seed of woman. Then he moves to the seed of Abraham and to David and then to the line of Judah. And there's no doubt that when it's all said and done, it's going to be a human being that comes, but yet was woven throughout all the scripture, this principle that when he comes to fulfill this covenant, he's not only going to be human, but he's going to be God himself. Emmanuel, God is with us. Isaiah the prophet said, And a virgin shall bear a son, and you will call his name. Say it. Emmanuel, God is with us. Micah 5 states that he would be born in Bethlehem, but that's not where his origin began. The scripture says that he was the ancient of days. Had no beginning. So why send the God-man? So that all those covenant promises could come to pass. This was the completion of everything that God had promised to his people for all the ages. First Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 1.20 says that in Christ all of God's promises are yes and amen. All the covenant promises. That's why he became flesh. Number two, the word became flesh so that he could be the mediator, the perfect mediator between God and man. Y'all remember the story when Eli is attempting to address his sons in their evil schemes? And he says, if one sins against another man, they can find one to mediate between them. But if a man sins against God, who will intercede? Y'all understand that principle? In other words... If we have a disagreement, we're peers equal, right? So there can be some mediation. Another peer can come in and mediate to sort out the differences. 
Who can be a peer to stand between you this morning and a holy God? Who can do that? Well, Job chapter 9 is the build-up of Job's attitude and thoughts regarding the God that we're dealing with. And he faces that same dilemma. Uh, you may think you have a case with God Almighty. Uh, Job, go ahead and work out your brief. When you defy him, Job reminds us that he will turn and hurt you. He's a powerful God. You just can't rush into the court and state your case before God on your own terms. He's not like us. So the pickup in Job chapter 9, if you've already made your way there, is verse 32. Job 9 verse 32. We might call this man's day in court with God. Job chapter 9 verse 32, here's what it says. For God is not a man as I am that I might answer him. That we should come to trial together. Listen to verse 33. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on both of us. What is Job asking for? Well, at the end of the day, he's asking for someone to stand in equally in the stead of both. At the end of the day... This is why the priesthood could not cut it. This is why the sacrifices could not cut it. The equality and quality were lacking. So Job is confessing that this is the most frustrating thing in his life. I can't make my case before God. So, as the high priest of old came in and they went, and they came and went over and over again with repetition, it was a reminder that that sacrifice was not suitable. He would always have to make a sacrifice even as the high priest for his own sin. Yet in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. Born of a woman, born under the law. Right? That he might redeem those who are under the law. So here's the son of God. He could, lay, he could and did lay his hand on God and us, on God and the fallen sinner and mediate. Hallelujah for the incarnation. That's the only way that would have ever been possible. To mediate. One hand on God, one hand on fallen humanity. Paul would say there's only one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ the righteous. Let that sink in, folks. If you're lost this morning and you don't know why you came to this church, I've got good news for you. We've got a God who brought you to this church, right? And if you're here listening, check this out. Paul says this without any kind of clarification, uh, nothing else. He just says to us, there is only one mediator between God and man. And it is Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the only one that can mediate between a holy God and fallen humanity. There's only one safe mediator between you and God. And that is the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Only one. All right. Number three, the Word became flesh so that Christ could become the last Adam and the perfect, perfect representative of his people. When he came, folks, he came as the perfect man. Luther reminds us of this in his song called A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Listen to this. Did we in our own strength confide or striving would be losing? Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing? So we're dealing with the perfect Adam. All right? 
So he came as our perfect representative. We know that the Bible brings forth terminology like last Adam, our second Adam. If you want to see that for clarification, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. How does that make y'all feel this morning? Yep. The second man is from heaven. Hallelujah! You see it? As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, if you're in Christ we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. You see the terminology. We, we, have, we have parallels from Psalm 8. We have parallels of Adam and Christ even in the book of Ephesians that we've been dealing with in chapter 1. Adam failed. Christ comes into this world as the perfect man and fulfills all that that means on our behalf as our representative. Yet I want to tell you that parallel reaches further. Okay, why? Well, the last Adam, again, is a description of Christ. But when he's pla Adam was placed in the garden, he fell. When Christ was placed in the wilderness, he obeyed. He obeyed. The first Adam fell before the serpent's temptation. The last Adam crushed the serpent under his feet and overcame his temptations. The last Adam... The first Adam disobeyed in the garden. The last Adam, the Lord Jesus, obeyed the will of God in the garden of Gethsemane and went on to the cross and thus procured our deliverance. The first Adam was cut off from the tree of life. The last Adam died on a tree, and in that tree, the cross gave us salvation to all who believe. Our Savior did battle with the evil one, and he actually fulfilled the Adamic mandate. He overcame the one who had usurped Adam. He defeats the enemy. And he secures for us through his obedience a righteousness that is apart from the law. Folks, let this sink in. There is no heaven without Christ's obedience. Why is it so important that he became our representative? Because, folks, what Adam could have never done with perfect obedience, the Lord of glory did that. Did you know that justification is not something you feel in your life? Whoo, I'm justified. I feel it down deep in my heart. Regeneration that leads to sanctification, you do feel in your heart because God makes you alive. Creation. New creation, resurrect from the dead. Justification is forensic, where God's outside of you, and yet outside of you, he calls you righteous, even though you still remain a sinner. How can he do that? Because Jesus Christ's obedience become your, becomes yours. That's real salvation. When, the, when Jesus came as your representative and he lived the perfect life and never one time sinned, and yet 
He took that perfect body, life, to the tree of Calvary and died in your place, the penalty that you deserve. Why? Because you could not obey the law. But Jesus did. And when you're saved and God justifies you, he gives you the perfect righteousness of the Son of God. And when the Father looks at you, he sees the perfect obedience of the Son. Not your obedience, but the Son's obedience is why he can call you righteous. Justified. Praise God. He secures for us through his own obedience a righteousness given to us that is apart from the law. How are you doing with living the law, folks? Aren't you thankful for grace? Aren't you thankful for grace? And finally, the word became flesh so that the immortal could die. Hmm. He would die in our place. He would die as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. And the Bible makes that clear that there is a penalty for our sins. And that, that culminates actually in physical and spiritual death. In the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. So we all have this death sentence given through sin of suffering and death. And this was a penalty before a just and a holy God. The Son of God, eternal God, becomes man. Why? So that the immortal can die in our place, becoming our perfect sacrifice and paying our penalty that we deserved. So the incarnate Son of God suffered and died in our place for our salvation. Paul says, now no one is likely to die for a good person. Though someone might scarcely die for a person who's especially good. But God showed his great love toward us by sending his own son to die for us while we were still Sinners. He demonstrated that love for us. Folks, the value of the body and sacrifice, let's say it that way, because that's what the Bible means when it talks about blood sacrifice. We're talking about the value of the one who gave the sacrifice. And where there was no value in those bulls and rams and goats that could ever fully atone for sin, we're dealing with the infinite value of the Son of God. That's why his blood can cleanse us from our sins and, and propitiate the righteous, holy wrath of God and then expiate and cover our sin. How can, it, how can he do that because of the infinite value? B.B. Warfield wrote, Because he is man, he is able to pour out his blood. Thus he had to be made mortal in that sense of flesh. Because he is man, he is able to pour out his blood. And because he is God, his blood is of infinite value to save our souls. Hallelujah. Uh, I'm reminded of 1 Peter 1.18. His blood was not like the blood of bulls and goats and calves. His was the precious blood that redeems us from our sins. The only thing that could forgive your sins and pardon you from the hell that we all deserved and the punishment we all deserved was not some martyr who just came to deliver us from a sentence. It had to be the most valuable death to pay that penalty. And we're talking about the infinite Son of God that paid that penalty. Today, He is a willing and able Savior to save those who are willing to come. He's able and He's willing. Now listen, uh, I left one thing out that I want to give by way of invitation. Can you find the book of John again? Matthew, Mark, Luke. John, can you find it? Here's the invitation. I stopped short of reading the end of that verse on purpose. Chapter 1, verse 14. 
And the Word became flesh. I hope that means more to you now than when I first read that when we started the sermon. And the Word became flesh and dwelt tabernacled among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Here's the invitation. Full of grace and truth. What does that mean for us? He ends with a powerful word of invitation. It tells us that Jesus came to earth. How did he come? Full of grace. Full of truth. Grace and truth are two attributes that don't often appear together, do they? I mean, how do we remain 100% truthful but also show grace? I mean, how do we show grace without it becoming an easy believism or something that is offered too soon without understanding the ramifications? In other words, humans tend to stress one side or the other. Truth or grace. We stress grace. When we do that, we're often too quick to forgive without demanding true repentance. If we stress truth, we're often so harsh and unloving. So we're told at times. But don't we need both? Grace and truth. If we forgive too quickly, we might we kind of make light of wrongdoing sometimes, right? If we judge too harshly, we make forgiveness impossible. Grace and truth. Let that sink into your mind. What does that mean? Grace and truth. These two words explain why Jesus came to earth. Grace and truth. I would tell you they go to the very heart of the gospel. Because he was full of grace, he died for you and me while we were still sinners. Because he is full of truth, he was able to pay for our sins completely. Because he is the son of God. And that is absolute truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man will ever come to the Father except through me. He forgives the sinner because he bore the sin of himself. He bore the sin himself in his body on the tree. He never was a sinner. He took sin upon himself. That was your and my sin. Right? Here is truly good news for people. And you this morning. Right? He is grace full. Let's put it that way. It says he's full of grace and truth. Let's say it this way. He is grace full. That's why God doesn't set a condition upon your heart to save you. Right? We say things like, come as you are. Folks, that's, that's all we got. Right? Now, you're not going to remain that way. But I'm just telling you, folks, grace does mean that. He is easy to approach, and you don't have to clean yourself up first because you can't. Right? You can't. You can't clean yourself up first. Who among us? has lived such a pure life that no dirt could be found in our past. Right? right? It's precisely at that point that the gospel message for us this morning becomes so incredibly relevant. No matter how checkered your record may be, no matter what sins you've committed, Christ invites you to come just as you are with that condition. No preconditions except a sincere desire to be forgiven by the one who has moved your heart in that direction. How? Through the agency of the Holy Spirit of God and the power of the word of truth. The Bible says in James 1.18 that he brought us forth by his will through the word of truth. That's how it happens. No matter how you slice it or dice it. He brings you forth and births you by the word of his truth. And so, 
graceful, Christ invites you to come with no preconditions except a sincere desire to be forgiven. And when you do that, the Lord of glory's promises are true, right? He's the God of grace, but he's also the God of truth. And that has to mean when he tells you something, you can take it to the bank, right? Our God has a perfect track record. He's the God of all truth. So you can come in complete confidence that he will keep his promises. Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord, say it, will be saved. That's the God of all truth. He's graceful, but he's also truthful. When he promises a complete pardon for your sins, our God means it. You can take it to the bank. Do you need a trustworthy Savior? Fear not, Jesus is full of truth. Amen? Do you need a forgiving Lord? Well, come to him because he is graceful. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the truth of the incarnation of Christ. Thank you for the humanity. Lord, the deity. Lord, we honor and worship you today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for salvation. Lord, we are commissioned by you to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. You, Lord God, are mighty to save. Lord, your word says, Jesus, all authority has been given to you. Not some, not half, not a little. All authority has been given to you. Which fits plainly in Ephesians 1.10. It fits plainly with Revelation. It fits plainly with Romans 11.36. Where all things are by you and for you and to you. The Lord Jesus Christ. All authority has been given. And you've asked us to make disciples. Which means many things. But primarily to preach and teach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to see your word infused into people. So they live the Christian life. And not only... Are they claiming to be saved? But the Bible reminds us that if you are saved, you are a disciple. God, help us to grow in our faith. Help us to think deeply about the things of God, about the incarnation, about your deity, about who you are. The more we know of you, we should be more in line to obey you. And the more we obey, the more we love the one we belong to. Your word says if we love you, we will keep your commandments. Thus it proves that we belong to the Father. You said those words. Lord, help us to walk in your truth. If there's someone lost today, Father, help them realize the invitation. Full of grace and full of truth. Not only do you offer salvation, you stand behind the ability, being all truth, to do exactly what you said you would do for sinners. You save sinners. You said to Mary, you will call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. Thank you for that truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Brother David's going to come, hymn of invitation. Let's sing together. Oh, come, oh, he Oh.
got to do a little coaching. Are you ready? Just think about what you're doing. Come, let us adore him. Now, I know a lot of you are thinking about Godfathers. I have to tell you, my stomach's growling a little bit. It's just the way it is. I ate at 6 o'clock this morning. I'm hungry now. But adoring Christ is more important. Ah, Jesus said something about that. My food is to do the will of my Father who sent me, right? I'm not trying to come down on you, folks. I'm just trying to get your heart and affections to engage what we're doing. Tell your face and your lips and your life that Jesus is worthy to be adored. Amen? Can we sing that one more time? By the way, wasn't it awesome to see the choir nearly full? Amen. Right? Just lifting their voices to the Lord. It speaks volumes of the glory and grandeur of our God in the church throughout all ages for us to lift our voices and sing. All right? We're hey, going to sing. Let's do it one more time. One, one thing real quick. Bring it on. I'm going to stay in my lane. All right. <laughs> my friend Nathan Murphy over at Boulevard uh, is singing a song this morning. It's a new Christmas song. Oh, come all ye unfaithful. Mm, that's us. And that's all of us. Amen? Yep, yep. That's why we need him so desperately. Mm. So if you need Christ, come. Amen. Sing it to the glory sing of the Lord. Sing choirs of angels. Sing an exhortation. My neighbor, they had been visiting here for about four weeks. Well, she was diagnosed with COVID, and she lasted a few weeks, and she died on Friday about 1.50. And so uh, they're, it's tough when they're just right there in your yard. They've only been there about eight months. Mr. Jim Wisely is his name. And so Nat and I have been up there and uh, trying to minister to them and family. So would you pray? Her name was Miss Donna. Uh, that died of COVID, and his name is Mr. Jim Wisely. And then uh, most of you have probably gotten the word that Mr. Paul Ingerson died uh, this morning at 5. And so uh, COVID-related as well. So I know that Miss Kathy needs your prayers, and uh, Tim and Enid, Swinky, uh, that would be Enid's father. And so, uh, but the Lord was gracious. They were in that mode of trying to figure out what was best to do, but the Lord just went on and took him home. And he took him on the Lord's day. Amen. So to God be the glory. Just pray for them and uh, pray for one another. And uh, guys and gals, just to see the cooperative nature and the desire to honor Christ, even out here in the parking lot for Bethlehem has been just unbelievable. And so, uh, you know, we may not think we're making much of a ripple, right? But I believe that God is using what our church is doing in the community to get the word out. At least say the gospel, right? And I, and I know the Paul scene is enough to grip anybody. Amen. So to God be the glory for what's going on. And I appreciate your faithfulness and uh, finishing it out to the end. And tonight, right, we got one more uh, four-hour block or something like that. Let's finish well. All right. To God be the glory. Amen. Bethlehem starts at 5 tonight, remember. All right. Hey, let's sing together. Go. Tell it on the mountain. 
Go tell it on God. 